One of my one of my favorite songs is He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. Isn't there like an action that goes to it? In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Yeah, he's got you and me, brother. There's there's verses. One of the reasons I love it now is because it's true. That God is sovereign. There is not an inch of this earth that he is not in control of. There's not a place where it is not in his hands. That's a great comfort to us. It's a great comfort to us at all times. And it was a great comfort to the people of Nineveh. As Jonah preached throughout the land, as he, as he was coughed up onto the shore from the fish and made it to Nineveh and began to preach as he journeyed through the land, the message of coming destruction made it all the way to the king's palace. The whole world is in God's hands. And Nineveh was about to experience that wrath. Nineveh was about to experience the wrath of a God who was in control. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 6. We're going to see three things about God in today's text. We're going to see that we're going to see God's standards, we're going to see God's goodness. And we're going to see God's mercy. Let's start in verse 6 of chapter 3. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Here already in verses 6 through 8, we're going to notice God's standards. And by standard, I mean his rules, his expectations, his desires. In verse 5, God's word says that the people of Nineveh believed God. And now in verse 6, the king does too. They believed that God was coming with judgment because the people were not meeting his standards. He said, what you're doing is evil. And what is evil besides disobeying God, not meeting his standards? It's coming up short of what he desires. He says, you're doing evil, and there will be destruction that comes. The king agrees that they need to repent. But what we need to know about God's standards is that they apply to everyone. The king just as much as the peasant. The king wasn't above God. He wasn't past facing the consequence, the punishment for their sin. What Jonah proclaimed was that even though you've been rejecting this God, his standards still apply to you. That was his message to Nineveh. 
He said, since you're not meeting his standards, you will be destroyed. And the people repented because they acknowledged and accepted God's standards for sin. Because sin is devastating in God's eyes, it became devastating to the Ninevites who trusted him. That has to be true for us today as we trust God. If sin is terrible in God's eyes, it must be terrible in our eyes. Their evil became devastating to the king, who the king probably not only allowed the evil that was going on in Nineveh, most likely he would have supported it and instigated it and approved of it. He would have approved of these evil ways. This king of Nineveh recognized, though, his position before God, and he responds in the only right way. He rose from his throne and sits in ashes. Look at his example. He traded his royal robes for sackcloth and his high position for a humble one. The king made himself low before God. It would be very possible to imagine a version of this story where God had gone to a city and said, judgment is coming, and the king said, who will bring judgment on me? Don't you see my army? Don't you see my wealth? Don't you see my great throne? Who's going to come and bring judgment here? But instead, this king humbled himself. What I love about this king is that he didn't try to save his public image when he was confronted with his evil. He acknowledged his sin and the sins of Nineveh and called the entire nation to humble themselves before God. In Luke 1, Mary is rejoicing in the news that she's just heard that the Messiah is coming, and the Messiah is not just coming, it's coming as her child, that God's going to give her the blessing of bringing Jesus into the world. And she's praising God, and one of the things she says as she praises God is, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary was in the humble estate. Who was Mary before God to bring in the king of the world? But look at this king of Nineveh. He was brought down from his mighty throne. Isn't this who God is? He humbles the mighty and he exalts the humble. Verse 53, he says, Mary says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. It sounds like she's describing Nineveh. God brought down this great city before his majesty and perfection. He humbled the arrogant before his righteous judgment. And the king sets a good example for us. How many times do we feel like we have more to lose than this king by repenting of our sin? I mean, is it it that there might be evil in your life? That there might be wickedness in your life? That there might be sin in your life? That you know you need help defeating? That you know you need a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ to help you hold you accountable, to help see what is true, that you're being so blinded by your sin, but you have so much to lose if anyone finds out, if anyone knows what's happening in your home, if anyone knows what's happening in your dorm room, if anyone knows what's happening on your computer, if anyone knows what's happening at work, 
what would happen? What if you lost everything? The king says, I'm fine losing everything. What's the goal here? And the, goal sets, the king sets the example of what the goal is. The goal is that we would turn to the true king. So often we consider ourselves the kings of our own lives, sitting on the throne in our own lives. And when we recognize sin in our lives, we need to step off the throne of our lives and sit down into the ashes. Take off our royal robes and lay them down at the feet of the true king and say, we'd rather have you than all of this. God, I would rather have you. And isn't that the call of Christ? If you'd rather keep your father and mother than follow after me, you don't deserve to follow after me. I mean, what is it that we're holding tighter than Christ? What is it that dealing with your sin, you might lose, that you're holding up in a higher position than Christ? The king was ready to do whatever it took to turn from his sin and turn to this God who is offering salvation. There's a question in there for us. Are we ready to do whatever it takes to kill our sin? Are we ready to do whatever it takes to rid our lives of the things that are rebellion against our true king? Or instead, are we accepting the sin in our life? Are we saying, you know what, the sin is better. Just dealing with this sin for now is fine. It doesn't really matter. If we believe that the sin is better than the cure, we believe a lie. It really means that we don't know what sin is. This king of Nineveh knew what sin was. And he humbled himself. And this really is the main idea of the text today. As you look through these verses, really the main idea of the text is that God gives grace to the humble. That's almost word for word from James 4, 6. James 4, 6 but says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace. And who does he give his grace to? He gives it to the humble. Later in James 4, in verses 9 and 10, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. You can see this in the Ninevite king. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You wonder what was happening in the king's courts moments before the news got there that there's a prophet saying that destruction is coming to our city. You can imagine that there would have been laughter. You can imagine that there would have been joy. And here, the king turns his laughter into mourning. He turns his joy into gloom, and he says, we need to follow this God. We need to obey this God. The Ninevites understood they had not met the standards of a holy God. So they did all they could do. They obeyed. The king commanded the people to call out mightily to God, is what the text says. Call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
turn, repent. Look, the standards of this God, we haven't been meeting them. We need to turn and do what he says. Call out to him. Talk to him. Turn from your evil ways. Turn from violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The one who should have been the example here to us was Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of God. He was a Jew, so he was a child of God, right? He was supposed to have known God and been with him and followed after him. And so far, if you read through Jonah, Jonah has not been our example. We, we've, we have a small tidbit here so far where he's gone and just given the message, but we've seen a lot of disobedience from Jonah. When God called Jonah, he resisted. He went the other way. He said, not me, God. How interesting is it then that this king of Nineveh, this what would have been a Gentile who knew nothing of God, would be our example of obedience. Sometimes we hold standards up to people of morality and traditions. We say, this is the way to be. And the way to be in Scripture is obedient. It's to look at what God says, and it's to obey. So what, is, what, is, what are the Ninevites doing here? What is the example that they're setting? They're turning to God's goodness. They're turning to God's goodness. So we're going to talk about God's goodness. What is goodness? What is good? If God is good, not just that he does good, but that he is good. If God is good, what does that mean? It means that everything about him is right. That he defines what is correct and beneficial. That what is correct and beneficial doesn't define God, but that God defines everything that is right. Or to say it another way, his very being His very existence brings forth righteousness and holiness. He is good. It's a picture of his goodness that God would bring punishment on those who are evil. When we talk about God being good, justice is a part of that. For those who are evil to receive punishment for their wickedness is good. It is God's righteousness flowing forth. And it's also a picture of his goodness, that he would warn them. His warning in many ways was an offer of hope. I mean, if you look back at what God told Jonah to say, it was, destruction is coming. There's not even in in his words a, so turn and try not to get destroyed. It was just, destruction is coming. But it's an offer of hope because if God was going to destroy them no matter what, then telling them would have been useless. There's a message in the fact that the prophet was there. There's a message in the fact that the message was there. The fact that a prophet was before them proclaiming destruction was in itself a message that they were being offered a way out. They were being offered salvation. If God is good then his word is true, and his warning is not in vain. Destruction really was coming. So what could these people do in the face of destruction? They could turn. They could do whatever it took to try to get on God's good side. 
they needed someone to rescue them. And they knew they couldn't rescue themselves. So they called out mightily to God so that he would rescue them from themselves. That's really the call they're making, right? God, save us from ourselves. We've done evil. We recognize we've done evil. And we need you to relent. We need you to turn because we can't make you turn. We're not strong enough. We're unable. So the king hears the warning from God who is offering a way out. And he humbles himself before God's standards. And he puts his trust in God. We're able to trust God because of his goodness. We talk a lot about trusting God in the church. There's another good song about trusting and obeying. We trust, we trust God, but why are we able to trust God? We're able to trust God because of who he is. Because he is good. We sing that God doesn't let us down, that he never fails us. Well, why does he never let you down? Why does he never fail you? Because he's good. Why is he faithful? Because he's good. So this king of Nineveh puts his trust in God. Instead of gearing up for battle, he sits down in the ash and calls out to this God. When we talk about trust, it's easy to come up with pictures of trust. I mean, some of you have may have been in team-building exercises where you stand on a table and fall backwards into people's waiting arms, the trust fall. Uh, hopefully, you've been caught if you've done that. I think about rock climbing. If you've ever been rock climbing, they hook you up. There's special words for all of it. You don't need to know it. There's just ropes, and they hook you to these ropes and attach you. And when you get to the top, the goal of rock climbing in indoors, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not a goal. It's the goal for me in rock climbing is that you get to like rappel back down. You get to jump off the rock wall and let the ropes catch you and bring you down. Honestly, for me, I don't rock climb because I don't like heights. <laughs> and if I made it to the top, I'd rather just navigate down the rocks again. But if you watch someone with great skill and experience, they'll hold on to the line and just lay all of their weight back into that line because they trust it. They know it's going to catch all of their weight if they fall into it. I mean, if that line that they were climbing with was broken or too small, unable to hold their weight, they'd fall to the ground. I mean, it would hurt. They'd possibly die, depending on how high you are, right? But they trust the line. The line holds them up. I had a... I had. I was building a building in my backyard. I'll tell the story. I was building a building in my backyard this week, and I had some help from uh, a guy named Carson. Carson's here. Thank you, Carson, for all your help. Uh, but he was standing on a ladder helping me, and I, don't, I still don't really know what happened, but the ladder <laughs> fell over with Carson on it. Carson fell off the ladder. Um, we're really glad he's here. Great boy, he's here. It was a little hurt. But the ladder was not a great, or at least where the ladder was, did not deserve his trust. I think God completely deserves our trust. There's no falling. There's no falling when God's holding you. There's no falling when you put your trust into God. The image of God's goodness here in Nineveh is that we can put all of our weight onto him. He doesn't strain to hold us up. He doesn't fall over on weak ground. He isn't too weak or untrustworthy. He is completely able because he is completely good. The Ninevites called out to God and adopted his standards 
because they trusted in his goodness. Trusting in God's goodness is a solid place to put your trust. I love what Sinclair Ferguson, I love how he said this. He says, they threw themselves helplessly on God's character. They threw themselves helplessly on God's character. Isn't isn't this the, the position of the Christian life? I hope that every day we live as Christians, as followers of Christ, that we might live throwing ourselves helplessly on his character. God, we know we can't make it without you. I know I can't please you without your help, without your spirit living inside of me. God, help me. One of the most lovely things about God is that mercy flows from his goodness. That his goodness doesn't, isn't some hard, wrathful notion. But that his goodness expresses itself to us in mercy. When we throw ourselves on his goodness, he looks on us with compassion. He loves us and doesn't give us what we deserve. For the Ninevites, they deserved justice. They deserved, they deserved wrath for their evil. And God looked on them with mercy. For us, we don't deserve the fullness of God. We don't deserve the Spirit to live inside of us. We don't deserve to know and enjoy God daily. But we throw ourselves on His goodness. And He receives us with mercy. He looks on us with compassion. He could say, no, get up. Figure it out yourself. Achieve your way to me. Right? Stop being so sad, person. Instead, he, he comes to us with mercy. He looks on us with compassion as we throw ourselves to him. It's the way he receives trust. It's the way he receives us as we go to him. That's what we see in verse 10 in Jonah 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This, is a, this verse is a portrait of God's mercy. God showed mercy to the Ninevites. It might be easy to believe it's because they did all the right things, but that would be wrong. God showed mercy because he did all the right things. Paul's letter to the Romans addresses God's mercy and goodness. In Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, this is what he says. Paul says, for he, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Isn't that good? Isn't it good that our God is good and shows mercy from his goodness? Doesn't that bring us to rest? What is the reason God shows mercy? It's not because you worked so hard. It's not because you did everything right. It's not because you are good. It doesn't depend on your will or exertion. 
He shows mercy because he is good. We can see the Ninevites repent and think they earned God's compassion. But God's compassion didn't start with their repentance. God's compassion really began, never really began. God's compassion has always been. It's always existed. But here in this, God's compassion began in chapter 1, verse 1. He called a prophet to go to them. God called a prophet to go to them. That was compassion. Their repentance was just a response to his compassion. Their repentance was a response to his mercy. That's a lasting principle for how God works in people. That's really encouraging for us. His mercy towards us is based on his goodness, not ours. And he doesn't have just a little bit of mercy. It's not like he has just enough mercy and you might run out of it. Our God is rich in mercy. He has great, abundant mercy. That's what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is this God. He's so good. He's so wonderful. Blessed be His name. According to His great, or I love how the King James Version says it, His abundant mercy. According to His abundant mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's according to His great mercy that He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. What do you base your salvation in? How do you know you're saved? How do you know that you're a Christian? Is it because you've done good things? Because that is not good enough. It's not because of your goodness that you've been shown mercy. It's because of God's goodness. We know we've been saved because our good God came for us while we were still sinners and died on the cross. And I throw myself helplessly on that truth. There's nothing else. There's no other way I can be helped from my great need. God's mercy towards the Ninevites started before they had any idea who God was. Man, isn't, man. God's, God's mercy towards the Ninevites started before they had any idea who God was. He was working behind the scenes. He was raising up Jonah. Man, I can trace that in my life. So sweetly can I trace God's goodness towards me and who he was raising up in the years before I was even born, before I knew who he was. I'm so grateful for my grandparents and their parents. I'm so grateful for my parents. I'm so grateful for those who shared the gospel with them. And there's someone, there's someone in your world who will trace and someone who's not yet in your world, most likely, who will trace the goodness of God to your faithfulness. God was raising up Jonah for the Ninevites. 
And church, he has called us to be likewise, like this prophet among the nations, calling out to them of the destruction that comes from rejecting God. I mean, God is working behind the scenes at this very moment to save some who are currently living in their wickedness, to save some who are currently not living at all. He's asking some of you to arise and go so that he can offer mercy. He's given an open invitation to receive his mercy. Romans 10, 13, so sweet. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We call on his name because we recognize that God's standards are too high for us to meet, that we've sinned and that we fall short of the glory of God. But in God's goodness, in God's goodness, He took our punishment on Himself. He willingly, He willingly sat before corrupt judges and took a brutal beating even before He walked to the cross on his own accord. No one forced him. He did it for you out of his goodness. He took our punishment on himself. He took our place for our sin on the cross. He did it because of his goodness, and because of his goodness, we can trust him. I'm not making that up. That comes, that comes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can find the account. It's clear. That's what he did for you. And because of his goodness, we know his word is true. And because of his mercy, we can believe. Because of his mercy, we can receive his gift of salvation. It's really because of his mercy that you're hearing this right now. I mean, for the Ninevites, it was mercy that Jonah was there. And for you, it's mercy that his word is being proclaimed and preached in your presence now. What's true is that you can be saved right now. That you can throw yourself on the goodness of God. And like he did for the Ninevites, he will relent for you. Because he has satisfied his wrath. In Christ. His wrath doesn't have to be satisfied on you. Your sin has already been paid for. Not only will he spare you from destruction, that's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's worthy of our praise. Not only will he spare you from destruction, he will give you himself. We proclaim this gospel, we proclaim Jesus, not because we don't want you to just avoid hell but because we want you to know our Savior. Because we want you to know the fullness of God, how beautiful He is, how surpassing His love is. I mean, it's the best trade in the universe to give up your throne and let Jesus take the throne. I want to give you that opportunity right now. 
And do you want to trust God for your salvation? We don't do this a lot, but I'm going to do it today. I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. If you know you're a believer, just pray for those around you. If you're not a Christian and, and, and you want to be, God cares about your heart. He, it, Romans 10, 13 is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's coming from a place of knowing our need and turning to God. So I'm going to lead you in a, a prayer. And it's not the prayer that does the work. It's, it's the condition of your heart. Are you in your heart turning to Christ? Are you trusting in him? Are you receiving his grace by faith? If you're not a Christian and you want to turn to Christ, it may be that you, you call out to God something like this. God, thank you for sin. God, I know, God, I know I need saving. I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins and rise again. I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to know you and enjoy you. Again, it's not the words of that prayer that save you. It's what's in your heart. It's what you believe. We've never done this at Provision Church before, but this morning I want to ask you this. If you believe that, if you're calling out to God for the first time this morning, would you raise your hand? Would you just let me know right now in a moment of courage? You call out. I praise God for your faithfulness. I praise God for your courage. We know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can look up this way. I love that Romans 10.13 offers that salvation to everyone, but then it asks this question. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, do you know who's called to preach the good news? It's not just me. It's not just those who are up here on this behind this podium, proclaiming the word of God. As pastors, you are called. Every believer is called to the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. You are to be those with the beautiful feet preaching the good news so that others may know the goodness and glory and mercy and standards of our God. We challenge you every week to live sin and change the world with the gospel. We want to keep doing that. We believe that God has called you to that. And as a church, one of the ways that we, we do that is by training up young leaders to help equip more believers. And, and I, I've said over and over that one of the most exciting things that's happening at Provision Church is our residency program. Our residency program is, is um, an intentional process where we take um, believers who want to go into ministry and we invest in them. We spend two years just investing and preparing them for full-time ministry. And we believe our role as pastors and, and people in full-time ministry is to equip believers to do the work of ministry, that we would all be people with beautiful feet sharing the gospel. So 
in, in that purpose, in that vein, the residency is increasing our ability to make disciples who make disciples. So the, the last year, you guys may know, we've had three residents. And our three residents uh, are Michael Flitz, Quinn Medlin, and Cole Bonsack. And I think Michael and Quinn may be in the kids' area. Uh, but they faithfully serve. We've been so grateful over this last almost year now, not quite a year yet. We've been so grateful for them and their faithfulness to serve us as a church and to reach our community and the impact they've had at Wingate University and in our families. And this year, we're very excited to be bringing in a, I don't know, we haven't really like labeled a term, but it's like a new class of residents. It's a new year of residents. And so our three currently will have one more year of residency. And this year, we'd like to introduce you to, we have three more residents who will be coming on this year to begin a two-year residency. And we're very excited about it. And I'd love to bring up Ryan to tell you a little bit more because we want to be a church who goes with the good news of the gospel. I think I just turned it off, Bill. My fault. Or John. Oh, it might be dead. It might be dead. I've used a mic before, I promise. All right, we're on. We're on. Can you hear me? There we go. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark. Uh, one thing about provision that I was just thinking of while I was sitting here, uh, one of the most encouraging things, if not the most encouraging thing about Provision Church over the past, I guess, year and a half that I've been here, is it, within our culture, I feel like we're just willing to, to kind of take on uh, anything and everything, <laughs> assuming it's biblical, and we're willing to take risks, and that's all of us together, and we're willing to just try things, and I've always committed Mark with that. I think the congregation kind of takes on uh, the attitude uh, and the personality of their, of their lead pastor, and so it's been a blessing to be part of it. We were talking yesterday, we had a residency orientation with the three new residents that are coming on, and we were looking at some old, uh, or some original goals that Mark and I had for this residency, and it said on there, the goal for the first residency was to begin January of 2022, and here we are, uh, March of 2022, bringing in a second class. Um, so it's just, just being a part of it has been so encouraging to me. It has been just so encouraging to me, to Mark as well. Mark kind of spoke to this. Um, I, I want to speak to this again. Uh, Ephesians 4 specifically tells us to, as, as pastors, that God gives his church um, leadership to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we take personal responsibility to do that. And that is why we have a residency. And we feel that all churches should seek to have something like that. Uh, we are pro-seminary. We are for seminaries. We think the seminary should supplement the church. And we should be uh, really doing, doing the work. But the reason why we want to equip the saints for the work of the ministry is to, as Ephesians 4 tells us, is to build up the body of Christ, is to make the church stronger. And that's really what Mark just spoke to. And the reason for that is so that we're unified and we are a stronger body of Christ. And if we are a stronger body of Christ and a unified body of Christ, and John 13 tells us the world will see that and they will know God. So the entire purpose is not to make Provision Church look awesome. It isn't at all. It is to magnify the name of God. And that is why we do this. And again, it's been a blessing to be a part of that. And, and we've had a couple churches, and you know, we love this, that ask, well, how are you guys doing this? What, what, what are you doing? It's really simple, and I would say it's the only strategy. I would say we pray hard, <laughs> we invest hard, and then we trust God to, to give the increase there. We're just praying for labors, 
And then when God gives us these labors, we're going to invest in them. And if they want to come on full time, and we vet them, obviously, and we disciple them. Uh, but then we trust that God will provide. And God has done that again this year where we're having three more uh, residents come on. So he continues to bless. I'm going to introduce the three residents now. So Alexis McBurney. We'll go in the, the order of the first name alphabetically. Alexis is going to be coming on to do kids ministry, family ministry, kids ministry. Um, she's a college leader now for us. You can come on this side, Alexis. Sorry. Um, and I, I can personally say she has invested in, in my kids, and my kids love her. So she's wonderful. She's gifted here and excited for Alexis. Uh, Ashanti Glass will be the, our, our other resident. So we have two females uh, joining the staff, which is a blessing. So Ashanti will be doing college ministry. Uh, again, she's been just wonderful to us. I, I think, I know when, I'm pretty sure it's like 60-40, female to male ratio. Um, and that is something that we want to continue to press into and, and do for, for women's ministry and to be intentional with females that come into our ministry and into our church. And then lastly uh, is Daniel Berizueta. And Daniel is a, uh, he is a blessing. It's just cool to see Daniel here. So Daniel was actually part of the ministry that I helped lead at uh, in Greensboro before I came here. And he was on our leadership team. And he came from a school that I really didn't know much about called Winget University. And we all, he always just loved Winget, 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 Winget. He wore all the clothes. And I'm like, okay. And then I end up coming here and he stayed in Greensboro. So he, he went to Winget, went to UNCG, was on our leadership team. So he'll be focusing on college ministry. Uh, has been a blessing in my life. So, um, again, church, to, to see this happening is, is to the glory of God. And it is 100% him. I can honestly say that. Um, we are a church that is three years old, <laughs> and by the end, of, or by August, so they'll be raising support starting from, let's see, what is it, May to, to August. So by August 1st, we'll have uh, a, a college staff of five and a family ministry staff, really of three. You include Gloria in that, so three. And to be a church that's three years old, um, God is good, and God's hands on this church, and it's a, a lot yeah, of prayer, I a lot agree. of blessings. So, yeah. yeah. So thank you, church. Yeah, I, I praise God for this, and I'm so thankful for Ryan has, is our college mobilization pastor. I don't know if you guys, I don't know if everyone knows this. Ryan is raising support to be here. So, I mean, it's just an amazing blessing. I think about there's people who watch online every week who are supporters, who give to our residents. And I think, church, there's people who are believing in the mission and vision of this church who aren't able to attend every week, who go to other churches and are saying, yeah, we believe that God's doing something in Union County, and we want to be a part of it. And so Ryan's come in and has done a great job. Part of his role at college and mobilization, mobilization has been really overseeing our residency program and building that out. And I love, I love to see students that have been invested in and who are currently investing so well uh, coming into these leadership roles and uh, learning in that, in that way. So church, we are really blessed. And one of the things that I'll say to you from here is, these guys do raise support, and we're still learning how all that works as a church, honestly. We're still figuring those things out. And one of the things that we want to ask you that we're not going to ask them is if you would be interested in uh, giving above your normal giving to the church in supporting them, we'd love for you to reach out to them. So what we're going to do to try to take pressure off of you is we're going to not send them out to ask you guys. So there's, there's no pressure from you to support them. But just know as they're raising support, if you, if you are interested or eager in helping with that process— they'd be glad for you to reach out. <laughs> Say, how can we help? Um, so that's, that's an option to you. Well, what I want to do right now is I want to pray uh, over you guys, 
and prayed to commission them, and then we're going to continue to worship. We've got one more song to sing that we're going to sing together, uh, just to worship our good God who has come for us, who is good and merciful and continues to provide for us in ways that we couldn't have predicted or foreseen. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for Alexis and Ashanti and Daniel, and we thank you for Quinn and Michael and Cole, and we thank you for the way that you continue to provide, not just for our church, but we think about who you're providing for in the future as well. So God, we ask that you help us to um, be fruitful in the way that we uh, train these young leaders, but God, we pray that for our church too. As a church, that our aim wouldn't just be uh, a a version of corporate success, but that our, our goal would be truly to be fruitful, to make disciples who make disciples who are uh, just obsessed with you. God, we want to be obsessed with you. Help, help that to be true for our church and for our leadership. We love you. We thank you for Jesus who made this all possible. We thank you for the cross and the empty grave, and we thank you that he's coming again soon. Guys, we continue to worship you. We thank you that you left your throne to come save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.